Um, so we're in John 7. Uh, we're, I guess uh, a number of you haven't been here uh, in a little while. We finished up a unit, big unit, on um, biblical manhood and womanhood. And so that was like six months. We left that behind. Now we're back in the Gospel of John, uh, picking up where we left off. And so for the last month or so, we've been going through John chapter 7, um, which is... Uh, so the background to this chapter is it happens during what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the largest and most popular feast on the Jewish calendar at this time. Uh, so it's a bigger deal than Passover, even, in, in terms of the Jewish uh, national psyche. I think scripturally, you might argue Passover is a, a more significant thing. But uh, it would be a very crowded time in Jerusalem. And... So in the beginning of chapter 7, we see that uh, Jesus, you know, doesn't really want to go up to the feast publicly. His brothers are like, hey, you should go up to the feast, you know, show yourself off as the Messiah. Uh, Really start your movement, you know, cash in on your fame. Uh, And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not my time, right? It's not my time yet. And we've really seen that, uh, that Jesus does not want to embrace the people's idea of what the Messiah should be, right? The, the Jewish people at this time have this idea that uh, the Messiah is going to be a political figure. He's going to come in and lead a revolution, deliver them from Roman rule, and restore uh, the national glory of, of the Jewish kingdom, right? That's who they think the Messiah is going to be and what he's going to do. But Jesus, he, you know, he rejects that view. Um, he Uh, does not want to embrace their messianic expectations at all. In fact, he wants to, his main mission right now is to proclaim the truth about who he is and what he's here to do, right? He wants to teach them that he's the son of God and that he's here to save them from their sins and bring them to God. They think they're already close to God, but he needs to kind of convince them that they're far away from God. Um, So the people don't really know what to make of him, right? The mood in Jerusalem and throughout all of Israel at this time is confusion and division over um, who Jesus is, right? Some people think he's the Messiah. Uh, Some people think he's, uh, quote, the prophet, right? Which is uh, a reference to in the Mosaic law. Uh, Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me uh, from among you. So, some people think like he's maybe not the Messiah, but maybe he's the prophet. Maybe he's like some other figure that was prophesied um, in the Old Testament. Uh, and then there's division and confusion over whether he's a good teacher teaching the truth or whether he's actually leading the people astray. Uh, remember the Pharisees and the and the chief priests and the leaders of the people. Uh, they think that uh, Jesus is leading the people astray, and they actually want to kill him. Um, and so that's kind of the mood, right? There's this, this widespread confusion and disagreement among the people over who Jesus is, uh, whether he's a good, good or a bad person. So in the midst of all this, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles in secret. And um, the reason why he goes up in secret is because he doesn't want to enter the city publicly and trigger the triumphal entry, right? Because, you know, uh, in, in the future, when he does choose to enter Jerusalem publicly during a great feast, the people are like, oh, okay, here's the Messiah. You know, he's riding in on a donkey. And, um, you know, th- that leads to uh, all the events that, that lead up to his crucifixion. So he doesn't want to trigger that prematurely. It's not his time yet. That's why he goes up to the feast in secret. And, um, you know, like we said before, his goal at this stage of of his ministry is uh, not to be popular, not to gain a following necessarily, but to teach the people about who he is and why he's come. So that's what this chapter, chapter 7, is all about. Um, it's It's the third major segment of teaching where he teaches the people about himself and his mission. Um, he did that in, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and now in chapter 7. And the basic outline of his teaching in chapter 7 is it's a series of back and forth exchanges between him and the crowd in the temple. Right? And 
in the, hey Josh, uh, in the first uh, several of these exchanges, um, Jesus is basically confronting the crowd with their ungodliness, right? They, at this time, um, you know, the Jewish people thought that they, that just by virtue of being born Jewish and living in the promised land, they were, they were okay with God. You know, they were on God's good side. Um, they thought because they were children of Abraham, they, they already belonged to God's family and in the kingdom of God, and they didn't need to do anything uh, to, to gain God's favor. Right, but Jesus is coming and confronting the people with, no, you're actually far away from God. You actually don't know God. Um, he has to preach the disease before the people can really understand the cure. Um, so that's what he's doing in these series of dialogues. Uh, and then the, the passage ends, uh, the climax of the passage is where Jesus finally offers the solution to all these problems that he's confronting the people with. And the solution uh, is summed up in the verse, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Good morning, Hong and Jeff. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I've, this, is, this lesson is going to be a little bit of a zoom out. Uh, so the last two weeks, we've been going over in detail the first um, like 24 verses of chapter 7. And um, so we're going to zoom out a little bit and put the whole chapter kind of in more of a, an outline. And this is the way I've outlined the whole, more or less the whole chapter, almost, almost the whole chapter, um, is that there are three problems that sinful man has, right, that Jesus is, is confronting us with. Uh, three problems of sinful man. Uh, he can't keep God's law, he doesn't know God, and he can't get to God. And we'll see how this works. And then, then Jesus presents the solution where God comes to us. Um, so I just want to pause with this outline and say, you know, there's, um, it's very popular these days to be sort of deconstructing the faith, right? Have you guys heard of deconstructing your faith or deconstructing evangelicalism or deconstructing uh, your Christianity, right? That's a very popular thing. It's, it's sort of based on this idea that, um, you know, that maybe there was a, a historical core, like Jesus was a good teacher um, who got some things right, but over the 2,000 years since him, uh, the church and, and like Western culture have mis- read and misrepresented and sort of twisted everything around. And how do you separate out the distortions of Western culture from the original kernel of Jesus' good teaching? How do you do that? That's the project of deconstruction. And I think one of the main conclusions that people often come to is that, like, Jesus, you know, uh, the, the gospel, what we call the gospel, you know, that, that we are sinners in need of a savior. That's not Jesus. That's a product of Western culture, right? Jesus was all about, um, you know, being a good person, being kind to others, doing justice to the poor and that kind of thing. He didn't, he wasn't concerned with salvation, but you can't really read the gospel of John and come away with that conclusion, right? I think if there's one thing I want you to take away from this lesson is that Jesus preached the gospel, right? We saw he preached the gospel in chapter 5. He preached the gospel again in chapter 6. He preaches the gospel again here. He confronts us with our sinfulness, our inability to get to God, to know God, to please God. And he presents the only solution being uh, him, coming to him and drinking uh, of the living water and receiving the Holy Spirit from him. So the gospel is really there in Jesus' teaching. It's not a product of, um, you know, Western culture adding stuff on or, or, uh, or twisting stuff around. It's really there. Uh, so last, time, last couple of weeks we talked about problem one, that sinful man, in, in our sinfulness, we can't keep God's law. Um, and I'll, I'll just summarize that really quickly with three verses from, from this section, 16 through 24. So in verse 19, Jesus hits the crowd directly. He says, Did Moses not give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Right? So there's the charge. Even, even the people who are born in God's um, you know, national kingdom that he set up and are the recipients of the law and have been learning the law their entire lives, 
even they don't keep the law. I mean, if they can't, then nobody can. Uh, so, did Moses not give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Well, why don't we carry out the law as sinful people? Well, look at verse 24. <clears throat> uh, we Basically, we can't keep God's law because we don't understand it. So, um, in this section, the Jews were angry with Jesus because they thought he had broken the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath, and they were like, you broke the Sabbath, you're a lawbreaker. And he, um, they failed, what they failed to recognize is that there was a higher law at work. Um, you know, when he healed the man on the Sabbath, he was uh, obeying a higher law, which is that, um, you know, it's right to do good on the Sabbath, uh, not to refrain from doing good. And he rebuked them. He said, do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's verse 24. So he rebuked them for failing to understand the law. He was saying, you know, elsewhere in the passage, he said, you circumcise a man on the eighth day, even if the eighth day is a Sabbath, right? So uh, why aren't you breaking the Sabbath law? Because you recognize that the the law of circumcision is a higher law, a higher principle than the Sabbath observance. So you recognize it in that situation. Why can't you recognize what I'm doing on the Sabbath is right? You know, so he rebukes them for failing to understand God's law. They can't keep God's law because they don't understand it. And they don't understand it because they don't desire to please God. This was back in verse 17, where Jesus says, If anyone is willing to do his will, that is God's will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I am speaking from myself. And we did a whole lesson on this, but, um, you know, the Jews who were hearing Jesus preach, they were trying to sit back and judge and evaluate his teaching to see whether he was the Messiah. You know, should I, should I commit to this guy? Should I believe in this guy? Um, but Jesus was saying, you can't, <clears throat> you can't do that. You can't just sit back and be a neutral judge of God's law and God's revelation. Um, you have to, you're either going to be committed to pleasing yourself, in which case you will be unable to understand God's law, or you're going to be committed to pleasing God, in which case the understanding of God's law will follow from your commitment to doing His will. Uh, that's the meaning of verse 17. And <clears throat> so anyway, uh, that first problem, I would summarize, it's a problem for us as sinful people before we get saved. It's, it was a problem for them. Um, the problem was we can't keep God's law because we don't understand God's law, and we don't understand God's law because we are not committed to pleasing God uh, when we are unbelievers, before we're saved. All right, so that was just review. We went over that in the last couple lessons, um, but a lot of you weren't here. So any questions on, on that? I know we just flew through that. All right, today I'm hoping to get through two and three and then the solution. All right, so number two, problem number two. Not only can we not keep God's law, we don't know God. Right? In our, and when I say we throughout this lesson, I mean in our unregenerate state, like before we're saved. Now that we're believers, now that we have the Holy Spirit, we can do all these things. We can keep God's law. We can know God. Uh, we have God living inside of us. Um, but I'm speaking, and Jesus is speaking to unsaved people, you know, sinful man. These are problems faced by sinful man. So sinful man doesn't know God. Let's read um, verses 25 through 29. Who wants to read chapter 7, verses 25 through 29? So some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, Is this not the man whom we are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are, not saying, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know sorry, that this is Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but of he, but he who sent me, who you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. All right. Thanks. So, um, yeah, 
the people here are, again, really confused about who Jesus is. Right? They're like, can he be the Messiah? Maybe? I don't know. They think he might be the Messiah, and uh, some of them think the leaders actually know it. Right? Uh, it says, um, look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. They, the leaders, are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? So they're thinking, oh, man, maybe the leaders have privately made up their minds that this is the Messiah. And they don't like it, but they can't do anything about it. Um, But then they kind of argue against themselves, the crowd does, uh, using some false reasoning, right? Look at where they say um, in verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. That's kind of odd to our ears, you know, why would they reason that way? Um, but this is rooted in uh, a Jewish belief at the time that, that, w- that came from some of their rabbinical traditions. They thought that when the Messiah came, he would appear suddenly from kind of from out of nowhere, like he would be an unknown person, an unrecognized person, and he would suddenly accomplish this instantaneous national deliverance against the Romans. Um, and that he would do that without anyone really knowing who he was beforehand. That was the tradition that had kind of grown up around the Messiah. And so they believed this, this false tradition, and they, they used it to reason to a false conclusion. Right? They said, oh, because we know Jesus, we, and we know, quote, know, that he's from Nazareth, um, therefore he can't be the Messiah, because the Messiah is going to be someone we don't know where he's from. Right, so that's what that's what the crowd is saying, and um, Jesus he picks up on this. He picks up on what they're saying, and he responds to it. And look at how he responds in verse twenty-eight. He says, "You both know me and know where I am from." So there's a couple of different ways you could read this statement of Jesus. You know, there's no punctuation in the original Greek manuscripts, so it's a little bit hard to get the tone. Uh, from this, but it could be uh, that he's saying, "Yeah, you know where I'm from in human terms, right? You know that that geographically I'm from Nazareth and I grew up there, but you really don't have the whole picture of where I'm from in a spiritual sense, right? So that's one thing he could be saying. Uh, the other way to read this statement, "You both know me and know where I'm from," is with a question mark and an exclamation mark at the end of it, like, "You think you know me and where I'm from?" Like, get real. You don't know me at all. Uh, but either way, the effect is kind of the same. He's, he's basically saying, whatever you think you know, here's what's true. Um, you, you did not judge me correctly. If you knew where I was from, you would listen to me. Uh, so he shows them their problem in sort of answering their objection to him. Uh, so he goes on to say, uh, again in verse 28, He who sent me is true whom you do not know. Right? And this means, um, he who sent me is true. That, that phrase kind of means, um, he, it is, uh, he who sent me is really the one who sent me. It is, really, it is truly God, the Father, who sent me. But the most important point of this, this sentence is, whom you do not know. Right? He says, he's saying, God is truly the one who sent me, but you don't know him. And then in verse 29, he says, I do know him uh, because I am from him and he has sent me. So their real problem that Jesus is kind of turning the tables on them for is uh, that they don't know God and they can't recognize the one that God has sent. That's their real problem is they don't know God. Um, But Jesus does. Jesus is essentially the only one who knows God. So this is very offensive to the audience here, right? Because these are Jews in Jerusalem who, um, you know, have have sort of grown up thinking of themselves as the chosen people of God, which they are. Um, and they thought, but they thought that because of this this being born into the uh, the kingdom of Israel, they thought that they had special knowledge of God, especially through the law, right? That God had given them the Old Testament, and they thought that they had special knowledge of God. 
and that they were unlike everyone else, like all the Gentiles of, of the earth, um, in that they knew God and had this special relationship with him. But Jesus is basically just demonstrating that they don't know God because their judgments about the law of the Sabbath and about who Jesus is are completely wrong. Right? He's saying, you don't know God like you think you do. If you knew God like you thought you did, you would have judged correctly about me and about keeping the Sabbath and about who I am and where I'm from. So they don't truly know the law. So because they don't know the law, they don't know God. Um, And in fact, it's the law that points to Jesus. So their failure to recognize Jesus proves that they know neither the law nor God. That's that's essentially Jesus' argument here in this passage, is you think you know God, but your judgment, your, your lack of judgment, shows you don't. By contrast, Jesus is the only one who actually knows God, uh, and he's the only one who can teach us about him, who can reveal God to us. And he's the only one who can fix our ignorance about God. And the crowd, they, they really understand the thrust of Jesus' rebuke. Like, oftentimes they don't get what Jesus is saying, but here they get it. Because um, it's in verse 30, it says, They were seeking, therefore, like in other words, because of what he said, they were seeking to seize him. To do what? To kill him. Yeah. They, they recognize that he's basically saying, you, don't know, you guys don't know God. And they are upset about that. Right? They want to seize him and kill him. But no man laid his hand on him, because why? His hour had not yet come. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of uh, a big thread you see throughout the Gospel of John, is Jesus is totally sovereign over the events of his life. You know, nothing happens to him without him choosing for it to happen and when it will happen. Um, So it really really shows his his deity there. Um, But anyway... Yeah, the, he rebukes the crowd for not knowing God and not knowing God's law, and they, uh, they hate him for it. Uh, but they don't, they're not able to do anything to him. So um, that's, that's the, the second problem, is sinful man does not know God. Uh, the third problem is that sinful man can't get to God. Right, so the, um, that was one we just studied uh, one back and forth between the crowd and Jesus. And then this verse 30 kind of starts another back and forth, or verse 31. Uh, So, who would like to read verses 30 through 36? So they were seeking to arrest him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Many of the crowd believed in him. They were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has done. Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am going to be with you, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He does not intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks does he. What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he said in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, thanks. Yeah, so at the beginning of, of this section, verses uh, 30 through 36, we've got the people more and more divided, right? They Now, uh, in verse 31, they're saying, a lot of them are saying, um, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? They're essentially saying, he must be the Christ. Like, who else could it be if it's not this guy? Um, and uh, so there, but then there's the, the Pharisees and the chief priests who are sending the temple officers, the temple guard, out to arrest Jesus so that they can kill him. So intense division over Jesus and over how to respond to him. 
And um, so the ones who are believing in him, there's the question, sometimes the question comes up, actually a lot in the Gospel of John, uh, when, when there's a group of people who believes in Jesus, is that true belief? Right? If you look at uh, verse 31, uh, again it says, But many of the multitude believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So, with John, you have to be careful with that word belief, because it doesn't always mean saving faith. You know, when John says, uh, this group of people believed in Jesus, uh, sometimes it's the wrong kind of belief. It's the kind of belief that Jesus um, does not accept, uh, as we've, we've talked about before. So, and I think... In this case, we can't really know what kind of belief this is. Uh, in, elsewhere in John, Jesus has uh, rebuked people who believe only because they see signs and miracles. Right? So it's, it's pretty clear that, that um, their belief here in verse 31 is because they see all the miracles that Christ does. Right? Jesus doesn't really like that kind of faith, um, but it's better than nothing. Right? Believing in him because of signs and miracles is, is better than hating him and trying to kill him. But it's not the best kind of belief like the Samaritans had, where they heard his word and believed his word. All right, so, uh, I, but I don't think we can really know, uh, there's not enough detail in this text to know whether the crowd is, is really believing him in, in the way that, uh, that Jesus wants to be believed in. Um, so, but the, the, that's not the main focus of the passage anyway. The main focus of the passage is Jesus' response and Jesus confronting them in his response with their third problem, which is that they can't get to God. Um, so he says in verse 33, for a, for a little while longer I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to him who sent me. That's clearly the Father, right? He's going back to the Father. He says, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Right, so um, notice that he's saying he's going to the Father, and they can't find him, and they can't come with him. Right, so that means he's saying you cannot get to where God is. I can get to God, but you can't. Right, this is, uh, this is another sort of slap in the face to the people of Jerusalem who they think that they're already in God's kingdom. They think that they already have the presence of God in the temple. Right? They think that of all the people on earth, they are the ones who, who are with God, who are close to God. But Jesus is saying, no, you are not close to God and you can't get close to him. But I can. Um, so the people are confused, right? We've seen, uh, we saw... His last rebuke, they understood, and they tried to seize him and kill him. But with this rebuke, they don't get it, right? They don't get that he's talking about spiritual reality and being spiritually close to the Father. Um, because in their response, they're like arguing, right, about why, why, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? Uh, is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Does anybody know what the dispersion is, by the way? Yes, the diaspora, right? So, um, in the in Israel's history, uh, there's, there's a lot of persecution, and um, at a lot of points, they were the Jews were taken out of the Promised Land and kind of scattered abroad throughout the Greek-speaking world, uh, and that was called the diaspora, or the diaspora. I mean, there's I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, they were dispersed abroad around the Greeks. So. Um, the, the Jews who still lived in uh, Judea uh, sort of looked down on all these, these, Greek, these Jews who were living among the Greeks. And um, they were kind of, uh, so they were like, wait, is he, gonna, is he planning to go to all those diaspora Jews among the Greeks? Like, why would he want to leave us and go and preach to them? Um, and even teach the Greeks, right? So... Uh, the, the, the Jews in Israel really look down on these diaspora Jews. They're wondering if Jesus intends to go and teach them and even those filthy Gentiles whom they're living amongst, right? And, uh, but there's huge irony here. John, the author of the, the Gospel, really loves irony. He has a deep sense of irony because what's going to happen after Jesus dies? 
the gospel is going to go to the Greeks, right? To the diaspora and then, and then to the Gentiles themselves. Um, so they're saying, they're speaking better than they know. Um, he, in, in uh, you know, it's sort of a twist. John is putting true words into the mouths of ungodly people who are, who don't know what they're saying. Um, anyway, that's the problem. That's, uh, they don't understand it, but that's their problem. They can't get to God. Okay, so before we move on to the solution, any questions about the three problems of sinful man that Jesus is really confronting the Jews with here? I think that is... Uh, well, I, mean, I don't know that he's trying to make a hard distinction between the believers in Judea and the believers around the world. I think he is referencing the diaspora, though. He is he is saying um, that you know the saints, the church, is scattered around the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's cool, and I think uh, Peter says something similar in the introduction of First Peter, um, talking about the the saints who are scattered abroad. Yeah. I remember talking with my small group uh-huh. about this, so like one of the challenges of even of evangelizing mm-hmm. non-believers and introducing the gospel, and you know, if we follow this outline, explaining thoroughly why, mm-hmm. as sinners we need Christ, there is no other propitiation for our sins. I guess my question to you is like, for you specifically, if you were faced with this mm-hmm. on by an unbeliever, like none of this makes sense to me, right? Yeah. How would you go about, I guess, establishing the foundations mm-hmm. of these truths to somebody who's a complete outsider? Yeah. Well, that's... But I know some people start with, like, creation, for example. Uh-huh. Like, well, let's start at the very beginning. And then some people, like, hit at, like, look at all this suffering in the world. Look at all this injustice. Have you ever questioned why X, Y, and Z is like this? Mm-hmm. I guess for you, I guess what would be your launch pad? Um, that's a great question. You're talking about preaching the disease before we yeah. can preach the cure, really, right? Really get to the point, like, why do you need Jesus? Yeah. Ask, why do I need this random guy? Who's... Yeah. Well, and that's the hardest part, right? And and I think first, you know, before I go into my own personal preferences and speculations, we have to realize that Jesus preached the disease, and people didn't get it by and large, right? The the people that we saw in chapter 6 especially, when he was confronting the crowd with their spiritual condition, they didn't understand, they didn't even understand what he was saying. You know, he had to, he had to say over and over, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, otherwise you don't have any life. Um, and, and finally, they, they kind of got it and were really offended and, and didn't accept it, right? So even the greatest teacher in the history of the world... Um, in in a sense, couldn't make them understand their their problem. Um, I mean, he could have if he exercised his sovereignty as God and just you know smote their minds with um, with a, a conviction of sin. <laughs> but uh, you know, but he didn't choose to exercise his sovereignty in that way. In human terms, with his teaching, like there were just the majority of the people weren't able to even understand it, much less accept it. Same thing with Paul when he went to Athens and was invited to speak um, at the Areopagus. He preached the disease, right? He preached, um, he said, you know, you guys make these idols and you just completely misunderstand the true character and nature of God. Um, And what was the response? Like, most people mocked him and, and booed him off the stage. Like, a few people accepted. A few people got it. So we have to set our expectations sort of like that, right? If we're talking to people about the gospel and we're talking to them about their spiritual cancer, most of them are not going to understand what that means. The, the ones who do, most of those are not going to accept it. And of the ones who hear and accept, only a few are going to accept that. And, and be willing to listen to the the solution, right? So, so we got to set our expectations there. There's no there's no like apologetic track that you can go through with an unbeliever that will 100% convince them that they have a spiritual need that only Jesus can can fill. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my um, 
I, I have, over the, the years of studying apologetics, I've drifted more towards what, what you'd call presuppositional apologetics. So there's, just very briefly, there's, there's a couple of different camps in apologetics. Like, um, those who would, would say they're evidentialist would say, um, you know, yeah, you can enter into a conversation with somebody and present them all the evidence, and, you know, a... a person who's thinking soundly will look at all this evidence and will inevitably conclude, or, or with high probability, conclude that God exists, that God's word is true, that Jesus is the Son of God, all these things. Um, a presuppositionalist would say, um, you know, that's a little bit too naive of a view of human nature and the human condition, right? There's, um, people are not neutral, dispassionate evaluators of evidence. Uh, people come with a worldview, and they're, they come with philosophical commitments that, in, in general, make them blind to the truths of the gospel. Um, and so you shouldn't try to start from some sort of like neutral common ground. You should just up front say, hey, I believe in the Bible because it's the word of God. And, you know, if you have questions about that, we can talk about why I believe that. But you know, for the sake of argument, are you willing to assume with me that the Bible is the Word of God and listen to what it says about uh, about who we are and what we're made to do? And if they say, okay, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll consider it, I'll hear what you have to say, then, um, you know, I like to point out that uh, Jesus said the entire law of God is summed up in two commandments. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if we just start with the second one, who is going to say that they have loved their neighbor as themselves? Right? Uh, certainly, I would not say that. I mean, I struggle to love even my closest family members like myself. Um, you know, much less my neighbor, right? I, yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, but then, so nobody has, has obeyed that second commandment. But then you go to the first commandment. If you're talking to an unbeliever, you can say, like, do you honestly ha even have a desire to love God? And, and most of them, if they're honest, they'll say, no, I don't even believe God exists, or I don't, I don't care about him, or I'm angry at him for something that's happened in my life. So, you know, I think it's, it's actually fairly easy to establish and then to even convince somebody that like they have not lived up to God's standard as revealed in scripture the problem is that they don't usually care right they they're not convinced that that standard is actually from God or that they're actually going to face any consequences for not living up to it but i mean that's where the gospel is a proclamation not an argument Right. It's not like there's anything we can really say that, that is... I mean, you can point to the existence of death, right? Why do people die? Uh, that's, that's kind of a, a good question that, um, you know, like a naturalist would say, we die because we evolved and, and death, you know, helps with natural selection and all that. But the real interpretation of death is that um, we die... Why? Why do we die? Because of sin. Because God looks at our life, and when we come to the end of our life and we die, he says, okay, yeah, that is the correct result of this person's life. That is, that is the correct verdict and outcome of this person's life. And you know why you know that? Because if you look at Jesus, what happened when Jesus got to the end of his life? What did God say about his death? Was that the correct verdict the guilty verdict on his life? No. Jesus was the only one who lived a perfect life, and so when he died, God looked at him and he said, no, this guilty verdict of death does not fit the life that my son lived, so I'm going to reverse it and raise him to life. Right? That's, that's the significance of the resurrection, one of the significances. Um, I mean, these are all things that you can say in a conversation. Um, again, uh, an unbeliever is not going to be predisposed to really even understand these things or, or much less accept them. And so it's going to take a long time. Like, it's best if you have a long relationship. Like, I've, there's, there's a guy at work who I've known for seven years now, and we've 
talked about many of these things, and he has probably come to understand some of them, but he has not accepted any of them. But it's, it's taken years and years of, of these conversations to get to that point. Um, anyway, sorry, there's a lot that could be said about that question, but uh, hopefully that, that helps a little. Yeah, we don't draw people, God draws people, right? So this... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, please please don't hear me saying that you shouldn't do, like, evangelism, you know, to, to strangers. Uh, there's, you know, God definitely uses that, uses that, that proclamation. Uh, you don't know how God has been working on that person's heart for the last 10 years. Uh, it could be that that the stranger is right at the point where they're willing to hear and accept. Um, and you, you could be the mouthpiece for that. Oh, yeah, that. I was just going to say, point three, uh-huh. get to God. I think that uh-huh. modern man thinks that they kind of reject the biblical God. He thinks yeah. that they can get to God because a God who emphasizes benevolence and mercy and so on will look at their life and uh, right on the curve and they're intent and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I think one thing C.S. Lewis says, he makes an analogy between Shakespeare being like God as a great playwright and creator of a work like Hamlet, uh-huh. and then the lead character of Hamlet. C.S. Lewis says, if Hamlet wanted to know Shakespeare, there's no way he can do that. Mm-hmm. The only way that it can happen is that Shakespeare, the great creator of the world of Hamlet, decides to write himself into the play of Hamlet so that Hamlet can meet Shakespeare and then they can know it. So um, that's one way I think that yeah. C.S. Lewis tried to convey by that analogy of how we as characters in this world can get to Right. That's a great point. I mean, yeah, it's not just our sin that makes us unable to get to God. It's like an inherent ontological limitation that we are created beings and he's the creator. Yeah. All right. So what is the solution to that problem that we can't get to God? We can't know God. We can't please God. Well, God has to do everything for us, right? He has to come to us. He has to write his law on our hearts, and he has to live inside of us so that we can be close to him. Right? And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the climax of the passage, these three verses, 37 through 39 here. I'll just read them again. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, Jesus has spent a long time presenting the problem, possibly over multiple days of of the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted for seven, uh, maybe eight days. depending on on which sources uh, you look at. Uh, So he's been presenting their problem, but what's interesting is he doesn't present the solution right away. You know, he doesn't doesn't rush through his gospel presentation. He lets them kind of stew in in the problem for a little while. Um, Because notice in verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, right? So this is a few days later, Um, that Jesus is coming up and standing in the temple. This would have been the most crowded day of the feast, um, which fits Jesus' purposes because he wants everyone to hear this. Uh, There would be huge crowds gathered at the temple. And understanding what he says here is helped by a little bit of cultural context. Um, So for at least a couple of hundred years before Jesus, um, the Jews in the Feast of the Tabernacle had performed a particular ritual with water that was very significant. Um, So they had a ceremony where the high priest would lead a procession that carried a golden jar, a golden container of water from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple. Um, and when the when this golden container of water was arriving at the temple, uh, the trumpet would sound, and uh, the people would shout uh, Isaiah 12, verse 3, which is, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Right? Think about that. 
Right? Just knowing what they're shouting gives a lot of context to why Jesus would say what he said. Right? They're shouting, with joy you will draw, well, will draw water from the wells of salvation. Um, and so the people, they already have in their mind this rich metaphor that connects water with salvation. Right? They already understand that. Jesus didn't invent that connection. That's, that's um, all throughout the Old Testament, really. Uh, he's not adding new symbolism to it, but he's claiming to be the fulfillment of those symbols. Right? He's claiming, he's saying, you already understand that water represents salvation. Well, I'm the source of that salvation. I'm the source of that living water. Um, so when he says, uh, so in, in verses 37 and 38, he presents this solution in kind of two ways. You know, God coming to us. And in one sense, uh, he will satisfy our thirst for salvation. Uh, that's what he's saying when he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Right, so he's, been, he's spent a long time showing them why, how they are spiritually dry. Uh, but not everyone who's spiritually dry is thirsty. Right? There's a difference. Uh, between just being dry, having a dry throat, and being thirsty. It's a difference of perception, right? Only a few people are going to perceive their need, their spiritual dry throat. But if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Uh, the implication is that he's going to satisfy that thirst. If, they, if you have a thirst for salvation after what you've heard Jesus saying, he will satisfy it. And he will do that, secondly, by pouring out the Holy Spirit into you. That's what verses 38 and 39 mean. They say, The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then the interpretation we get from John, the author, says, speaking by the Holy Spirit, But this he said in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Um, now, there's a, a bit of a technical note here. Um, interpreters of this passage uh, disagree a little bit over whether the grammar of that verse indicates that the living water flows from within the believer or from within Christ. Um, and we don't have time to really get into that discussion, but it doesn't matter too much um, because the, the, what's clear either way, is that the Holy Spirit is coming from Christ, residing in the believer, and producing eternal life. Right? No matter how you read the grammar of the passage, those three things are clear. Um, so, the flow of thought here in this whole passage is um, we can't keep God's law, we don't know God, we can't get to God, um, but Jesus brings God to us, if only we will come to Him. Right? Notice there is some responsibility on our part. Right? It is, in one sense, God does everything because we can't do anything. But, you know, in those two different causal levels, there is a human level of response where Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him do what? Come to me. So we do have a responsibility in this. We do play a part. It's not, it's not like we get any credit for doing something amazing. Like, oh, I came to Jesus. I, I did something great. Um, no, God gets all the credit for doing the miraculous work in our hearts, but we do have a responsibility to recognize our thirst and come to Him. Uh, another way of saying this would be, when we come to Jesus, He pours His Spirit into us so that we know and are known by God. And He saves us so that we can go with Him, with Jesus, into the presence of God and he writes his law on our hearts so that we can please God and keep his law. Right? That is what happens when Jesus pours the Holy Spirit into our hearts. That's how he solves those three problems that we face as sinful people. That's a good point because like, um, you guys know in the, in the Last Supper that we uh, celebrate to remember Christ, that's, that's a covenant. right? The, the cup of the covenant in his blood and the Holy Spirit is the, the seal and the deposit of the covenant. Um, and this concept of covenant, as we talked about several months ago when we started the manhood and womanhood um, unit and, and talked about marriage as a covenant, a covenant is a, a committed relationship that is permanent and binding. Right? So 
God's not just making a contract with us where we're like two equal parties, each bringing something to the table and promising to be faithful under certain conditions for a little while. It's God unilaterally coming to us, uh, promising to do for us what we can't do for ourselves and promising to be faithful to us forever, period. Is that, that's, yeah, he's not, he's not just sort of like randomly making up metaphors, right? No, he's, he's very deliberate and strategic in, in the way he presents the gospel to people in a way that they'll understand it, or at least maximize the chances that they'll understand it. Um, yeah, and I think there's another sort of even higher level reason why he chose the water, the living water, as, uh, as the, the metaphor to use. Um, yes, because of the immediate connection to the feast, but uh, this will help us because uh, we're going to zoom out a little bit and put this chapter in the context of the surrounding chapters, um, which, you know, when you're going through a book for, like, months at a time, it's easy to lose sight of the, the broader context. But you guys remember in John chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, and um, he said to them uh, at the end of chapter 5, Moses wrote of me, uh, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Right? You guys remember that? And it's like, wait, how did Moses write of you? Moses didn't, um, in the Old Testament, you don't see the word, the name Jesus. But Jesus' claim there uh, is that Moses, in all the things he recorded in uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, pointed to Christ as the fulfillment of those things. Um, and three of, and the, the next three chapters of John, chapters 6, 7, and 8, are examples of Jesus fulfilling very significant things that Moses wrote about. So three of the most significant things that Moses wrote about uh, are acts of divine provision, God's provision for Israel. Uh, number one, the manna from heaven. Remember, they were starving in the, in the wilderness, and God gave them manna from heaven. Uh, number two, they were thirsty in the desert, and God gave them what? Water from the rock. Water from the rock. And number three, they didn't know where to go in the desert, so God led them as a pillar of fire and cloud. Um, so he lit their, he provided light for their way. So, bread, water, light. And so in chapter 5, Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. In chapter 6, Jesus proclaims himself the bread from heaven. Remember that? In chapter 7, he proclaims himself the living water, the source of living water. Like he's the rock out of which the water flows. In chapter 8, he's going to proclaim himself the light of the world. Right? So that, so John is very deliberate in his structure of the gospel. He says, Moses wrote of me, and then he gives three solid examples, three of the most significant examples of things that Moses wrote about that Jesus actually fulfills. All right, so that's the, that's the 32,000 foot view um, of what we're studying right now. So, yeah, so that's, that's another reason why Jesus is choosing the living water as a metaphor to present himself as. Uh, it's, it's not only the immediate context of the feast, but it's also the, the larger context of the whole Old Testament and God's uh, salvation history that where he's been just like putting all these um, these actions in place so that people will be able to look back and see how Christ fulfills them. Yeah, I think um, let me close us in prayer.